Peter, compulsive overeater. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Ben, for asking me to speak. Um, I've told my story here a couple of times, and I thought, mm, you know, the same old thing. But, uh, you know, there's also people listening on the podcast who've not heard it. Um, and, you know, and I really thought about, you know, what happened, what it's like, and what it's, you know, what happened, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I guess the real question is, you know, I'm 53. I came in when I was 17. With the exception of about a five or six year gap, I've been coming to meetings since 1983 on a weekly basis. Why? That's what most people ask who are new. Why? Why are you still here? And, you know, sometimes I don't necessarily have an answer for them. But what I, I do know is this. I discovered, I took about a five-year gap. You know, I came in in 1983. I was 17. I come from a long, illustrious history of alcoholics and compulsive overeaters. My parents are both. And, uh, you know, I heard something here. And I stayed. And what I discovered in being in OA was I got to stop. My weight became level for years at a time. That doesn't mean the food obsession went away, but the up and down, the constant dieting, all of that began to go away as soon as I began working with a sponsor and getting a food plan. And then when I thought, you know, I had about 14 years of abstinence, yeah, I have a little sugar-free stuff here and there, a few other things going on, you know, I can have some of this stuff. I can have some sugar. It's not going to kill me. I now have it under control. And there were a few other things going on at that time. I was going to OA. I didn't have a sponsor for years. And I'd moved to Los Angeles and I couldn't find a sponsor, which, you know, you're not looking if you're in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, uh, and I wasn't talking to anyone. And it was... And I slowly began to put on weight. Now, I put on weight for some, looking back on some really good reasons. About five, six years prior, I had a car accident. Uh, I ended up messing up my back. It was in constant pain. Couldn't really move. I had started a very, very high-pressure job at the same time. And they said, you know, you should take time off. You should go on disability. I didn't. I just sort of powered through it. And, you know, I stopped exercising. I started eating more to mask the pain. Just a little bit, you know, nothing abnormal, but over time began to put on weight. And because I was working in a high-pressure job, you know, again, putting on more weight, slowly but surely. And I wasn't talking to anybody in the program, and I began to think, gee, this isn't working. I'm putting on weight. And everything I'm doing is not taking it off. Well, I wasn't sitting down and talking with a sponsor and working the steps in a way to deal with that. And slowly but surely, I began to think, it's not working. And I didn't share that with anybody. And so, and I never thought at 14 years, I got a 14-year chip, that I'd be gone the next year. But I just sort of, you know, I slowly stopped coming to the meetings and slowly began to put on weight. And I put on 70 pounds. And, um, you know, literally one day I looked in the mirror and thought, wow, what happened? How did it get like this? I had no clue, and I had no idea how I was ever going to lose that weight. And I tried all the different things, you know, the crazy diets, you know, exercise. I had a health scare, and my doctor at the time said, start running marathons. 
because I had to get my heart really in very, very strong shape. Injured myself doing that. You know, I'd lose the weight and then put it back on and lose the weight and put it back on. And that thought ever always came out. Gee, the only time I never worried about my weight was when I was in OA. I was the same size. I didn't have to really worry about it. But it doesn't work. <laughs> and I can't go back there. I cannot sit through another meeting. I No, no, I can't do it. And uh, at the time, I had gotten a sponsor in AA, who I had met in OA years before. And it was funny. After I lost, and I was on some crazy, like, protein-only diet. One of those things where just nothing but protein. I lost, like, 20 pounds. And he said, then he recognized me. After, you, know, you know you're fat when you have to lose weight for people to recognize you. He goes, yeah, I used to see you in those OA meetings over on Hill Street. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, it was... Um, and I was like, hmm. And he had stopped going to OA, and he had put on a bunch of weight. And he worked a great AA program, but he had, just couldn't get the OA program. And so we began working together, and he was extremely helpful to me in my AA program. And one day, I remember, we were driving. He had to go speak. He spoke a lot in AA. And um, wonderful speaker. And on the way over, he goes, you know, I'm recommitting to my abstinence. It's like, Really? I thought you said it didn't work. He goes, I know it doesn't work, but I got to do something. I'm recommitting to my abstinence. And uh, I thought, hmm, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And so I came back to the meetings again. I came back to the kitchen sink, this meeting, when it was over at the log cabin. And I walked into the meeting, and I hadn't been to meetings about five years. I saw a lot of the same people. And, in fact, I saw a guy that I had sponsored in Philadelphia something like 15 years before. And I had no idea that he even lived in Los Angeles at that point. And um, so I thought, okay, that's my sign. I'm supposed to be here. And I really didn't want to be here. And I saw a couple of people, and I went to another meeting, and people were like, oh, you're back. Hey, will you sponsor me, and this, and that, and the other? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I thought, no, I need to get a sponsor. I need to get a sponsor. And that was my problem. I knew that was my problem and the reason I left before. So I asked someone. I thought he was way too strict. You know, his last binge, I think, was a piece of bread. And I thought, okay, that's like, that's not a binge, you know. That's not even an appetizer. Uh, You know, um, but I need someone. And he's got time. He's got a good program. Asked him. Gave my sponsor. He's been my sponsor since. And that's, you know, 12 years ago. And so now I have 12 years of abstinence. And, you know, it's, um, you know, I think the thing is that when it comes back to why am I still here, there's two reasons. One is, and what's interesting now at 12 years, you know, in the last year or so, maybe 18 months, 12 months, somewhere around there, I began to put on weight. I put on about 10 pounds. And I'm like, I got to take this off. You know, things are getting tight. You know, what's going on? And it was the first time. And again, it's, it wasn't lost on me that I had the same issue at about the same amount of time the first time around. Albeit, I think the circumstances were different. And, um, but this time I had a sponsor and I could say, you know what? I'm putting on weight. I'm not sure why. My food plan hasn't changed. What's going on? Well, something had changed. I, you know, I was doing all these marathons. This doctor was like, 
you have to run marathons. I had a heart problem. My father died very young of a heart attack. And he goes, you're going to have a heart attack. You have a 100% chance of a heart attack. The question is, is it going to happen next year or is it going to happen in 20 years? So he's like, lose 50 pounds. I don't care how you do it. Lose it and start running marathons. Period. And he was the head of um, cardiology, cardiac preventative medicine at UCLA and running an experimental program, which I got in on. And it was something that revolutionized, uh, you know, this is 20 years ago, 17 years ago, um, dealing with, um, you know, heart disease and cholesterol and things like that. So if he says that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. And, um, and so I did it. And I got really tired. I ran 15 marathons. I got tired of running marathons. Then he went back into research, and the new head of uh, cardiac medicine at UCLA said, well, you don't have to run. We're not, research is saying, but you don't really have to run these marathons and stuff. You know, it's, it's hard on the body. You know, in fact, it might even shorten your life a little bit. And I thought, now you tell me. Okay. So I thought, and then I thought, too, was I using that exercise to keep my weight down and eat a little bit more? Maybe. I heard some people talk about that in the, in, in the meetings, and I thought, hmm, maybe I'm guilty of that a little bit. So I thought, okay, I really don't want to run. I don't enjoy running. The doctor has given me a check to not run. And so when you stop training for marathons and you stop running 10, 15, 20 miles, um, you tend to put on a little weight. And so I tried to adjust the food down a little bit and hmm, moderate success. But I kept talking and saying to my sponsor, this is what's going on. I communicated. And it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, the drama that I would have in the early days or when I was not in program, it's like, okay, let's make adjustments and see what happens. And what I began to notice, being in my 50s, years to do things, motivation decreases. You want to go do this? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, you know, let's go. You know, listen, we have to get all this stuff out of the attic, bring it downstairs. Oh, I don't want to. You know, I, it, everything became like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. Do you want to go you know, th- this big hike? No, that's too much work and stuff. No. And at work, oh, I don't want to deal with that either. And what I noticed is my motivation to do things really took a marked decline after I hit 50. And, and maybe that's age, maybe it's my personality, I don't know. But, and it certainly fed into me not exercising. So I thought, okay, let me begin exercising again. Let me begin doing the long runs again. And, um, and my kids even said, you know, you're a lot calmer when you're doing these long runs. You're easier to deal with. Okay. I still didn't enjoy it. And I sort of, you know, went back and forth. And finally I decided, you know what? I feel better doing these runs. I feel better training and running a marathon. It gives me the motivation. I say no a lot less when I'm exercising. The side benefit may be it may be easier and, and keep maintaining my weight. But that was like the last thing that uh, was the motivation for me to get back into running. It's really about up here for me. You know, if you're, gonna, if you're running 10 miles and you've got to go run 12, you're going to do it. It's not, oh, I can't do it. got to do it. And then that begins to translate in other parts of my life. And so the motivation began to come back into my life. So that was something that, 
you know, is a little bit, now that's coming back and all of a sudden my body's adjusting again. Because, you know, I was doing this type of running for, since 2003, and then to stop it, of course my body's going to change. But I didn't have, what OA gave me here was, I didn't have all the drama and angst surrounding it like I did before. And the world's going to end, and this is going to happen, and oh my God, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to be 400 pounds, and this is, none of that thinking was there. It's just a very calm, measured approach. And that is, you know, the reason I use substances, whether it's food, alcohol, not really drugs, um, I want a peace of mind. That's all I've ever wanted. Abstinence and being in OA and working the program gives me peace of mind. Not 100% of the time, but it does a lot of the time. You know, today, my daughter had her 13th birthday party and had 35 of her closest friends over. <laughs> and a bunch of them stayed for a sleepover. I mean, I, I was like, okay, we're never doing this again. You know, I was the guy that had to scoop out all the ice creams for the ice cream sundaes. I couldn't do that 20 years ago or 15 years ago without running off, getting some of my own. Then come, where's dad? You know. He's out eating ice cream and, you know, in the other room. And then coming back and, you know, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. None of that. I just did it, washed my hands, and then was done. And the ice cream sat in the freezer for a couple of weeks, taking up way too much room, and it wasn't calling my name. I couldn't do that before. I'm like, can we get rid of this? Because we got this other stuff by the freezer and there's nowhere to put it. Yes. So... I have sanity most of the time around food. I didn't have that before OA. And I didn't have that when I'm doing it on my own. I don't have that with diets. So that's the reason I'm still here, is I don't have to worry about it. As long as I work the steps, have a sponsor, follow a food plan. Does that mean I don't obsess about some food? Yeah, I obsess about some food. You know, the other aspect, too, is emotional recovery. Um, I've been going back east a lot, putting my mother and stepfather in nursing homes. They have dementia. Spending time with my cousins. You know, I did not spend a lot of time with my family. I'm not close to my family. Uh, I've had sort of a tortured relationship with them over the years. Other aspects, you know, I've been sued multiple times by uh, members of my family. Uh, There is all sorts of chaos I mean, whatever, you know, the Jerry Springer show used to call my family out trying to get us on. (laughs) Literally, that's kind of the level of drama. They're like, please, please, we'll fly out here. Please come on our show, you know, and uh, and other family members would be on other shows like that. And and literally, I get a phone call. Turn on the TV. I'm like, why? Just turn it on. Turn on. I'm like, oh. You've got to be kidding me. So that is like the level of drama. I didn't want any of that. I didn't want any of that. So I pushed it all away. And so, you know, for me, I love keeping people at a distance because I find I can't trust people too well. Has that improved over the years? A little. But there still needs to be progress. The other part of emotional recovery, and, and it was interesting when I was back there, my cousins are like, you're like from a different planet. I don't know, you know, what happened. 
but you're not like anyone else in the family. I'm the only one in recovery. Um, but, you know, a lot of stuff had been going on dealing with my parents. And it's like, okay, let's deal with it. Let's go on. You know, let's just keep working at it. And it just was a nightmare. And it's like, just show up, take care of it. Let's keep the drama out of it. The program and the steps gave me the ability to do that. You know, it, it allows me to live my life today. And, you know, the thing that, um, you know, and, and, and out of this came some good things. You know, my stepbrother and I didn't speak for 20 years. Not because there was nothing wrong. I just, we didn't have a relationship. And I didn't even know where he lived at one point. I, you know, my stepfather went to the hospital. He didn't know about this. And I'm like, okay, I didn't have his phone number. I didn't have an address. I didn't have an email. I, you know. And it just was, we never talked. And so I got in touch with him in the last year and a half. We've had to work very, very closely together on this stuff. He's retired, so it's very easy for him to you know, help out because my parents are on the East Coast and he's on the East Coast. And we've developed a very good relationship. And that's something that, you know, has been um, wonderful that has come out of this situation. So I can look at the situation and go, good things can come out of it. Um, you know, the thing with the emotional recovery is I got to have the steps and I got to have some spirituality. I see this a lot in the program. I came in when I was 17. I don't have emotional. Um, when you're 17, you're not a grown-up. Things are still forming. And a lot of things that I attributed to the disease were really adolescence. You know? And a lot of the calmness I have today is not recovery. It's old age. (laughs) You know, people, there's a lot of serenity, a lot of old-timers, things like that. Thank you. Part of that's old age. I'm not going to, I could, you know, so yes, it's time. Yes, it's recovery, but it's also slowing down a little bit and having a little bit of perspective and being able to look at my life and use this perspective. And the steps are very useful for that. You know, the 10 step, the inventory process, you know, sitting down and going, okay, what's my part? And more than what's my part is what am I bringing to this and what are my expectations to this situation that are coloring my behavior and what I'm expecting out of them. And let me see their side of it. And how do I change? Because they're not changing. They're not going to change ever unless there is some cataclysmic event or some spiritual awakening. That person is not going to change. So I have to make that decision. And I have to change. And I don't like that. And sometimes that means changing my behavior. Sometimes it means changing the relationship. And I've had to do that a lot uh, in my workspace. You know, and I've had partners. And one partner, I remember writing so many 10 steps on, yeah, she's doing this. And then, da, 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 da. Finally, like, no more 10 steps. i got to terminate our, our, our um, partnership. That's what it came down to. And my sponsor's like, good. <laughs> but you had to do about 20 of these to get to that point of being calm and in acceptance that this is what needed to happen and to do so without anger. And so you change your actions. And now I've got another partner. I've had a couple of great partners. This one is a little more problematic. 
he's not changing. I have to make the decision about how I'm going to act. And do I put up with this behavior? Do, um, is, you know, it's all about what I'm going to do, not what that other person's going to do. And that's very difficult because I have to take responsibility. Behind that is the spirituality aspect of I'm being taken care of, no matter what. You know, and I remember, you know, in 2008, financial crisis, I work in the financial industry, my income dropped, my sponsor got lots of panicked, hysterical phone calls. Like one day, I remember, I think it was 2009, 2010, I'm bankrupt. I have no money. There's nothing in the bank account. I don't, you know, I just look like, ah! And he's like, everything will work out. I'm like, yeah, sure, everything will work out. Okay, great. And everything worked out. You know, there would always be something at the last minute that would come through. And I had to do things that I really did not want to do. I intellectually disapproved of. You know, I had to take money out of my retirement account. I had to go call family members and ask them for money. A lot of money. You know, hey, I need to borrow some money. You know, I can't make the mortgage. Oh, okay. How much do you need? 20000 And I was real quiet. <laughs> and there's a lot. That's like a deep silence. On both. <laughs> you know, they're expecting two or 3000 I said, well, I might as well ask for it all up front. Twenty grand. That was really hard to do. Really hard to do. But they were generous. They said, okay. Other things happened. And I got through it. I was taken care of. And I remember writing down, writing inventories, asking for the fear of financial insecurity to be removed. And my sponsor said, stop praying for that. Why? Your higher power knows what you need. This is just continuing the obsession of financial insecurity. So maybe just trust that you're being taken care of and act as if that's going to happen. Lo and behold, two weeks after that, the fear of financial insecurity left. And it's been gone. Now, that doesn't mean I don't wake up sometimes at three in the morning like, you know, oh my God, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Oh, what, 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 what? Yeah. But then I can go, everything's fine. Relax. I'm being taken care of. And being taken care of can mean declaring bankruptcy, losing my house, losing my job, kids dying, all sorts of things. That I'm still being taken care of, even though the outside aspects of my life appear to be falling apart. And we can get into more of that in the Q&A. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself uh, since we're being recorded. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And we'll go to 935. Ellie. Thank you, Peter. Uh, would you please explain the development or talk about the development of your relationship with a power 
or higher power of God to the point where you are now appear to be trust. Okay. And your love. Thank you. So basically talk about the, the, the development of my relationship with a higher power to where I am today. So I was raised Catholic um, and um, I didn't have the problems that most people had with that religion. I, I had more problems with the practitioners uh, than the philosophy. and <laughs> uh, But it became irrelevant. Because, you know, I'd pray for things to happen and they wouldn't happen. And I'd try and lose the weight and, you know, do all the right things and nothing would happen. And so I stopped. It became irrelevant in my life. But I always was seeking something. I was always looking for something. And so that quest, I knew that there was some type of spiritual solution out there. I just didn't know that it could be relevant in my life. Um, you know, OA, coming into OA and AA and begin working the steps. You know, it says in the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result. That means if I work the 12 steps, one thing happens. I have a spiritual awakening. doesn't make me abstinent doesn't improve my bank account, doesn't make me a better person. It's just, this is the path to a spiritual awakening. And so by working the steps, there's a lot of prepare and execution. I'm going to write it, you know, I'm going to get ready to turn my will and life over to the care of a higher power. Then I do it. I'm going to get ready to share an inventory. I'm going to write it and share it. I'm going to look at my character defects and get ready to have them removed, ask them to be removed. I'm going to make a list of people I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. I make amends. It's prepare and execute. Prepare and execute. And through that process, what happens is I get to see how I am my own worst enemy. I am the one who's creating the roadblocks. I am the one who's creating the resentments. I am the one who is putting that wedge between me and life. And I'm asking to have that removed so then I can go out and be of service. That helped, but then the specific things is the only way you get spirituality is bad things need to happen. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a theory. It was a theory. Yeah, you know, you turn it over, you're taken care of. Yeah, okay. All right, there's no money in your bank account. Things are looking really grim. I used to walk around thinking there were literally things that could happen in my life that would kill me somehow. And, what I, and, and by going through it and saying, okay, I don't trust, but I trust that you trust, so I'm going to take your word for it and do it. And I was okay. I made it through. It may not have happened the way I wanted to, but I got through it. And so I, what I discovered was nothing was going to kill me. Nothing was too great that it was going to devastate me to the point where I could no longer go on living. And that was a huge revelation for me. But the only way I could do it was to act as if that was going to happen. You know, the thing that I usually forget and, and I never got in step six and seven, you know, I'd ask to have these character defects removed. I'm like, okay, I'm having them removed. Letting them go. Letting that resentment go gone. And someone would say something and I'd fly off the handle. I go, okay, well that didn't work. 
and I'd wonder why. And I'm like, okay, let's do it again. I, I didn't pray enough to have this removed. Let me try it a little harder. Let me go to a workshop. Let me do all the written stuff, you know, in the Hazleton book and write it all down because I didn't do it thoroughly enough because I still have it. No. I ask to have the character defect removed and then I act as if it is removed. And I believe that it has been removed. That was the thing I didn't really understand and it took me a long time to figure out. The fear of financial insecurity has been removed. Okay, I'm going to act as if financially I'm being taken care of. That's what that means. And I'm going to go about my day. That doesn't mean go, you know, run up the credit card and spend how I want. But it means I will be taken care of through this problem. And I had to go through that, that tangible event were the things that helped me come to the spirituality I have today. There's a couple quotes that are my guiding force. One of them is, follow those who seek the truth, flee from those who find it. <laughs> you know, it is really, if someone's got the answer and there's a lot of gurus in the program, mm-mm, I stay away from them. Because it is a path. That's the way I have to look at it. It is a path and, 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 and with complete certainty and this is how you have to do it. I have to stay away from that. And to trust that everything is working out exactly as it is. I had a sponsor in AA, my first sponsor, who actually went out and got drunk uh, after, you know, after a few years, now back in the program. But he had a saying that I really thought. He said, after the first miracle, after the first miracle of being relieved of your, your addiction, it's really rude to doubt. <laughs> I always hear that in my voice when I'm like, oh, no, this isn't going to work out. Why? Because, no, I don't want it to work out. I want to walk around with this negative activity. That's the other thing. If I practice something, I get good at it. If I practice piano, I get good at it. If I practice tennis, I get good at it. If I practice negativity, I get good at it. If I practice feeling like a piece of junk and walk around thinking that, I get really good at it. And so I have to reprogram and say, no, I'm not going to think about that. Even the story I tell, you know, we get up here, I tell you what happened. You know, what it was like, what it's like now. This is my version. It would be very interesting to get other family members up here to talk about my version of my recovery and you get something really different. And that's why we call it my story. Because it is fiction. It is absolute fiction. Because what happens is my past changes. As I get more recovered, I remember the past in a different way. And that is recovery. I have the ability to change the past and how I look at it. You know, I had a horrible childhood. I didn't have a horrible childhood. I had really difficult parents in a difficult situation. My childhood was nice. That's not the way it was 20 years ago if, you, if I was speaking. So I get to go back and realize that the story I walk around with myself is a fiction that can change. And I have the choice of changing how I choose to, oh, you know, you just got screwed over and it's just the way it's always going to be. No. This is happening exactly the way it's supposed to be. If you want to know your higher powers will, open your eyes. And that's a really hard thing to realize. Well, what about the devastation? What about this? What about this person dying and that person getting killed and this? And how can it be? How can that be that that's what the higher power wants? Open your eyes. That's how you're interpreting it. Open your eyes. 
That's your higher power's will. It's my job to be in acceptance. I eat over a lot of things because I'm not in acceptance. So, that's how I did Yeah. Um, can you talk about uh, marriage and, you know, building a family in and out of program? Marriage, building a family in and out of program. I think the first thing I had to do was, and I didn't do this for many years, was I had to negotiate for my adulthood with my family of origin, my parents. And literally that involved, you know, my parents were master controllers, and my mother especially, and she was like the mafia, you know, and she always needed someone to hate. There always had to be an enemy in her life, and sometimes it was me, sometimes it was you, it was, but she needed that person to hate. And, you know, I remember her always calling up, it was my brother, and oh my God, you know, what are you going to do? And they'd always be coming to me for things. And finally, I said, stop coming to me. You call me up, you ask me what to do, I give you advice, usually program, you don't listen, and I said, you've done this for years. No more. I'm not, we're not talking about my brother, who's a problem, or this. And I'm going to have my life. And this is how I'm living my life. And I'm not interested in whether you like that. I had to negotiate for that in order to live my life as an adult with my own family. Um, again, it comes down to acceptance. And that's very, very hard for me to do. It's very hard for me to trust and to be accepting. And what that means a lot of times is putting up with things that intellectually I think are impossible. Um, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate. I don't, the kids don't have a lot of problems. You know, they're healthy, they're smart, they're, you know, things like that. I don't see too many addiction issues. You know, but one, one thing, and this gets back in the inventory process, about, you know, during the financial crisis, you know, my income dropped, I was going to go bankrupt. And, you know, I said to my wife, look, I really need your help. Very, very important. I need you to go get a job. I need you to bring in some money. Or don't, don't get a job. Just bring in some money somehow. Put the house up. You know, we've got a house that could be, you know, for filming. You know, it's like an old colonial-looking house. It could be anywhere USA. I said, let's get it up there with the, uh, you know, location scouts. Rent it out for filming. Uh, I don't care which, you know, somehow I need money coming in. I need your help. This is really important because my back is up against the wall. This is very important to me. And she didn't do anything. And I come back and say, I really need your help. I'm scrambling around here. You know, make a phone call to family members. See if there's money around. Nothing. And it was very, very hard for me to look at that and say, you know, every time you said this is really important to me, I need you to show up in this way and do this for me, I did it. I didn't like it. My heart may not have really been into it, but I did it. And then this time, it wasn't. So what do I do? You know, it's like, I can write about it. She's not going to change. This is the way she is. Well, do you want to be in a marriage with someone that, you know, can't really rely on when your back is up against the wall? But there's a lot of great things that she does. She is a wonderful mother. There's a lot of other things. I had to do this whole countless inventories with my sponsor. He goes, either you change your attitude or you change your actions. And that is the constant balance that I have to deal with today. And with my children, 
You know, I have ideas of what they should be doing with their lives and how they should be and what's going to happen. And I just, you know, have to come back to they're their own people. They're going to have their, you know, I have to let them have the dignity of their own experience to mess up and let them mess up. Because if they don't have the dignity of their own, me telling them does nothing. They need to have that dignity and I have to step back and let it be, even if I think they're making a, a very poor choice on things. And that's very, very, very hard. Uh, yes. Um, so a lot of it is revolved around abstinence. You know, my food plan is what I eat. My abstinence is also a bunch of other things that are incorporated into my life and into my program. So I do morning meditation, four to six minutes. You know, either God's there or he's not. I don't need to sit around for a long time. And I can't. You know, um, you know if people can do 20, 30 minutes, I, I'm in awe. I can't. Um, you know, like the steps, prepare, execute, prepare, execute. I got to do that with my food. I got to have everything I need in the house um, so I can have an abstinent breakfast. And I basically have something fairly similar most days. You know, if I'm out on the road, I'll have something a little bit different. Um, but it's prepare and execute and have those things available. And, um, you know, I can't say that that stuff is always there. Um, you know, but I have to make sure it's there for me. And then I do some other things that are just kind of, you know, like always in the mornings I'll have a, a big thing of water with lemon. You know, and I have a couple, you know, probably about 64 ounces of that throughout the day. You know, a lot of water. And just because it's healthy. Exercise. You know, I work out with a trainer twice a week on weight training. I run three days a week. And if the weather's not too bad, I ride my bike. So almost six days a week, I'm doing some type of physical exercise. I have a sponsor. I don't always call my sponsor. Basically, because it comes down to two issues, romance and finance. I mean, he knows what they are before I am. He's like, okay, what is it this time? You know, it's almost like a shorthand. Because the longer you're in recovery, it basically gets down to a laser focus. It's not like there's all these problems overwhelming you. It always comes down to the same one or two core issues and concepts and ideas. And it's like, oh yeah, let me go back. Let me ask to have this removed. Let me let have a different perspective on this. So, you know, going to meetings. You know, that's an important thing. It's very easy to drift off and not go to meetings. So all of those things I try and do on a daily basis. And, um, you know, at work, it's the same thing. I try and bring this into work. I try and do the best job possible. I've hired a business coach. Very much like a sponsor. But I'm very, very, it's very looking at my practice, how I do things. How can I do a better job? And how can I get rid of the things that they useless activities that are helping no one. And how can I be more efficient and deliver a higher level of service to my clients to have more joy in what I do and more satisfaction and also, you know, and then, you know, I have them working with my assistant too. So we have a better relationship and they enjoy their work environment more. It's very much an outgrowth of a sponsorship relationship. Well, why can't I have that in a professional level in a completely different way? And so I do. I've hired someone that, that, that helps me in that area. And, that, and so that's also part of my daily practice, too. 
uh, you know, we speak once every two weeks or so, and I have accountability. There's things I need to show up and say, okay, here's what I did this week. Here's what we're working on. You know, he'll ask about, all right, what are you doing personally? What are your personal goals? So it's not 100% work, but it is very, very different than a sponsor. It doesn't replace a sponsor, but it is in that realm. And it's been very, very helpful to me uh, in, in doing that. And I, I did it about 17 years ago and picked it up again at the beginning, uh, the end of last year. So those are some of the daily activities that I try and do for my program. Um, yeah, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so service. I sponsor about five guys. Um, I try and have a commitment at this meeting because this is my home meeting. Uh, it's a little tough to get to a lot of meetings because, um, you know, I either get to go to Los Feliz or Santa Monica. You know, the meetings at the log cabin are now gone, so it, it's, it's kind of hard for me. So this is my home group, and I try and have a service commitment and be involved here. If someone asks me to speak, it's yes. If someone asks me to show up at a meeting, yes, I will do that. I sponsor guys, you know, as I said, about five of them, and very involved with them. And I have a sponsor. You know, we are... Um, Providing a service uh, in a way, and that is doing service. And um, so those are the ways that I, I do service. And my time is up, so thank you.